Scripture reading today is in Psalms, chapter 51, verses 10 through 12. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Thank you, Connor. You know, when you add it all up, um, page-wise, content-wise, verses, whatever you want to call it, outside of Jesus, the number two character in the Bible is King David. He gets the most pages, the most talked about, and rightfully so, right? Where we're at, you see this rise of King David. First, part of 2 Samuel, everything seems to be just going right. David's described in 1 Samuel 16 as one after God's own heart. Probably for most of us, many of us, at one point in our life, if you were to say, who's your favorite Bible character? Some of us would say, King David. He's courageous, he's faithful, he's bold. And for a while, much of his story is is a fairy tale, right? It's trending up and to the right. It's what everybody wants. He's anointed. He defeats Goliath the giant. He rallies this army. He unites the 12 tribes into one nation. He assumes the throne after Saul's death, takes Jerusalem back from the Philistines. In the biblical story, King David is this hope. If you hadn't read anything up till 2 Samuel 10, it seems that David is going to be the one who's hoped for in Genesis 3.15. The Adam and Eve seed, the seed that will come and will crush the chaos monster, will crush the snake. David's checked all the boxes up to this point. Symbolically, he has crushed that Goliath head. Barry mentioned this last week. He defeats Goliath, the one who's wearing chainmail that looks like a snake. It's all symbolic. If you step back and look at the tapestry, he's not only done that, but he's taken Jerusalem, which is the high place, very symbolic of the Garden of Eden. He's brought the ark, the presence of God, back into that city. The imagery is heavy. He's bearing God's image as a king. The people living in shalom and unity. It's all coming together. And then it isn't, right? We pick up our story today. This tragic place of 2 Samuel 11 that reads like this and I want you to notice if you've been reading along with the story, see if you just listen and can hear and notice how this story connects to so many before and so many that will follow even into today text says in the spring it's time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the holy Israelite army, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, I don't want you to miss this 
little detail in the text, which isn't really a detail that's small. It's a great detail. But it's this idea of everything coming together. God's desires, a place where goodness can be seen. Jerusalem is becoming the light of the world. But instead of this continuation of God's garden dream, you get Eden's repeat nightmare. What David just did repeats the same motif, the same pattern, the same steps of Adam and Eve. It's Eden on repeat. As Eve and Adam took the fruit, they went through this step. Eve saw the fruit. She saw that it was good and pleasing to the eye and desirable. She wants it. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. So she takes it. And in response, what do they do? They hide. David here, walking in the evening in a palace, in a city garden. He sees Bathsheba. He notices that she's beautiful. He wants her. The text says he gets her. And then, of course, we know, or if you don't know the rest of the story, he spends the rest of chapter 11 hiding his sin through conspiracy, through murder, through deceit. In the text, the same word in Genesis 3, 6, for when Eve takes the fruit, is the same Hebrew word when David sends to get Bathsheba. He takes. Now this story is so much of our story, isn't it? It's more than just a report on a failure of a king. This is a template of temptation. It's a total process of transgression. It's what we repeat. It's been on repeat in humanity a billion times in a million different ways and thousands of different ways just among the people in this room. And we could spend some time dissecting and picking apart Bathsheba's and David's story, and we probably need to do that. And there's some good sermons out there on what Bathsheba is going through, and I almost went that direction. But I want to focus on where the text takes us today. Because the point of the story is not just David's sin. The David and Bathsheba episode is actually not the actual highlight. It gets the most press, and it gets the most attention But when you look at the text, chapters 11 and 12, our eyes are not to be drawn towards David's actions, but towards God's. The text actually is drawing us not towards these people who see, want, take, and hide. It's drawing us towards, just as in Genesis 3, it's drawing us towards how does God respond. Chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel are a package deal, and the point of them is found right in the center with these words. The end of chapter 11, verse 27, and then 12, 1. The text says this about the Lord. You have all this conspiracy and cover-up and this sin, and then we get this little phrase. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. (laughs) That's probably quite the understatement, right? But then you get 12, 1, which gives the actions of the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. I'd argue that the centerpiece of this text is not to be focused on David's actions and his sin, his cover-up, his conspiracy and his lies, but the text actually starts to come alive and we get our eyes open 
when we see who the main character is and what the main character does, God. David sins for Bathsheba. He sends for Uriah to cover it up. He sends Uriah to the front. There's three sendings that David does. Kind of telling you three is a complete number. It's telling you David went to the full extent of his sin. But there's one sending by God saying God's going to work this out. And David, while he sends for Bathsheba and then sends for the death of Uriah, God sends a prophet. Nathan. I want to read this little Interchange, what happens is Nathan shows up and it goes like this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When Nathan came to David, he said, speak some parables. Very Christ-like of him, even though Christ was not, was, he was not aware of Jesus. But he says there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. End of story. Short, little succinct packaged parable and David's response David burned with anger against the man and he said to Nathan as surely as the Lord lives the man who did this must die he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity and then Nathan said to David it's you you're the man Man, wouldn't it be great if we could see that unfold? But I want to just think, say, thank God for Nathans. Thank God for people that will tell the truth. We all need a Nathan from time to time, right? I certainly have had some good Nathans. Maybe not always wanted Nathans in my life. They haven't gone by the name of Nathan. Maybe they need to. Wags, come call me out on something. All right? They've gone by different names, many from this church, Shane and Dean and Ed and Ike and Monty, my campus minister, Barry, Brad, Rick, oh, Allison. Allison's been my most often Nathan. <laughs> but I'm thankful for Nathans. But if you know what it's like to be thankful for a Nathan, you also know this morning what it's like to be a David. And if you don't know what it's like to be a David, just take a breath. If you're breathing, you're like David. Because you need a Nathan. To be a David is to be in need of somebody who will come and help and hold us accountable. I hope you know this morning what it's like to have a God-centered, grace-filled person that comes to you and says, let me point you back. Let me get you back on path. Let us walk together towards the Lord because there's nothing like good accountability when it works, right? But there's also nothing like bad accountability <laughs> when it doesn't.
I want to just take a moment just to pause because we're going to talk about accountability. We all see that what Nathan does here is good. Amen? Amen. But let's learn from him and let's just do a little bit of quipping for just a moment. Because I think the church, we're supposed to walk together with Jesus, not walk alone with Jesus out in front of everybody. We're supposed to walk together, so we need accountability. And so let's learn here just for a moment what accountability is and is not. And I think first what we notice here in the story is accountability first is relational, not rules-based. The rules come, but it's first relational. And one of the biggest mistakes I think the church in the past has made, and maybe what we make is we often get the cart before the horse, We want to get to the rules, we want to get to the correction, and we forget that this comes out of relationship. Yes, the rules are downstream, but they're not in the headwaters of Nathan and David. The headwaters, we find out, 2 Samuel 7, Nathan is the one who's working with David on the temple, the plans for the temple and the praying for the temple, and if this is God's will. Most scholars believe that Nathan is probably the one who writes down 1 and 2 Samuel. He's the one who takes the leadership and the mantle role of the prophet and the one who speaks on behalf of God from Samuel after Samuel passes. So what we know here is Nathan and David have this relationship. And accountability, first and foremost, flows from relationship, then into correction, then into discipleship. How many times have I made that mistake of pushing for something that I didn't have the ability to push for because I wasn't in that person's life. How often have we pushed others away because of maybe getting this disordered? To get rules before relationship, church, sets a dangerous precedent, doesn't it? I think it sets us up. It creates people who think they're church guardians. Well, I've got to fix everything and then everything will be my way and then we'll get it all figured out. Right? But we've got to remember, and I think what Nathan shows us here is we are not called to be church guardians. We're called to be disciple makers. And discipleship requires relationship. Amen? Second thing I think Nathan shows us here is that he comes in with grace, not an attitude of gotcha. Continuing the text of verse 7 and 8, it says this, Then Nathan said to David, so he's just told this parable, and then he says, you're the man. You're the guy. You're the rich man who stole from a poor man. And then he says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. And he's speaking on behalf of God, and he says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And of all, and if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. I love that Nathan, because of his connection to God first, his relationship with God, and then his relationship with David, is he doesn't just show up and go, you're the man, told you so. You're the man, gotcha. Instead, what he does is he leads and appeals to grace. Yes, David is being held to a standard. God has extended covenant with David. 
God has expectations for David and he has expectations for us, but those expectations aren't foundless and flippant. They're not desires set up by a shallow God. They are based and founded on grace, right? Take note of the verbs that are in this. Anoint, deliver, gave, gave, and I would have even given more. See, God is not the God of saving gotchas. He's the God of saving grace. And so our accountability doesn't flow from, oh, I just can't wait to get that person caught in a corner because I really don't like them. If you show up for worship and you're just looking for something to say that somebody else is doing wrong, you've forgotten why we're here and how we got here. It's not gotcha. It's all of us kneeling at the foot of the cross under grace. And any move towards God. What we learn here is that any move for Nathan to help David, for David to be held accountable, to be convicted, for him to turn that 180 degree turn in repentance, it's got to flow from grace. It's a standard that starts with forgiveness. And finally, I think what we see in the text is that accountability is righteous, not right. And I'll explain that. The goal of accountability is to receive something. Not for somebody to say, look, I was right. Now, it feels good to feel right, right? It feels good to be proven right. Anybody have a problem with that? Anybody like to be proven right? I'll raise my hand. Okay, a few people. (laughs) We have six honest people in the house today. (laughs) All right. We love to be right. But see, accountability doesn't come from a desire to be proven right or to go to somebody and say, oh man, I'm going to get you. I'm going to be proven right in this. It's actually to receive something that we can't get on our own. God sends Nathan to David not to be proven right, but to get David back on path with the Lord. And I think we miss that. Righteousness is not ours, right church? And because righteousness is not ours, we or I can never go to someone else with trying to be right. But we can receive righteousness when we seek the Lord together. The source of righteousness. So when I worked in Stillwater, um, and when I was a college student there, man, that church building had a flat roof, and it had problems. The building was built in the 60s, and I think from the day it was built, it leaked. It was an incredible building of leaks. <laughs> Somehow it leaked in the basement. I don't know how that water got down there, but the basement had water leaking when it would rain. Over the years, Stillwater Church of Christ had figured out how to handle this. They tried to fix it. I talked to the maintenance guys one time, and they, was, they said, oh, you've got to get on the roof. There's actually, we've been up there when it's raining, and there's this place that we've named the Whirlpool. There was an actual spot on the roof in which the water would get sucked into the building so fast that it would create a little eddy like in a river, and the suction would suck it right down into the building. And, of course, the church had tried everything to fix it. It tried recovering it 
the latest, greatest technology, this paint, this cover, duct tape, electrical tape, whatever they could find. What they had finally settled on when we were there as college students and later in family ministry is they had settled on just mitigating. Miraculously, out of every corner and out of every hidden in every little closet and everything, the first drop of rain, didn't matter when it was, if it was Sunday night, Sunday morning, middle of the night on a Thursday at 2 a.m., that church knew how to get buckets out. They knew how to get buckets. There were probably 25 of them spread all over the building, and they would just pop out of nowhere. My favorite place to watch when it would rain was right outside of the auditorium in the foyer, and it would come down not as a trickle. It must have been where the whirlpool was. It would come down like a waterfall. Half an inch of rain looked like it had rained five inches. It was unbelievable. That place got a 50-gallon trash van. It leaked. But nothing would fix it. The buckets helped, but they didn't fix the leak. In fact, the only way to fix the roof was in 2011, we raised the roof. Took the old roof off, put a brand new roof on, decided not to make it flat, tried to work with gravity, and guess what? It didn't leak. It was great. You couldn't patch the old roof. You couldn't put duct tape on it. You had to raise it. I'm reminded of that story because of this. Nathan is sent. Not with the goal to put a band-aid on David. Not to get David to fall in line with some rules or to catch him in a gotcha moment. But Nathan sends, is sent by God to raise the roof. To redo David. To get him back into the presence of the Lord. And I can't help but feel sometimes that maybe what we need out of this whole message more than anything is not just a little equipping on how to do accountability, but maybe what we need is that this story reminds us that we're caught in our own leaky whirlpool of a church. And we're trying to put duct tape on a waterfall. And we're trying to fix things through programs. And we're trying to fix people by talking bad about them and gossiping. Or we're trying to fix the church by saying, well, if that person would just die, then eventually we'd get to where we want to. And don't laugh at that. You know that's true. Right? Or if they would just move away. Or if that person would quit their job. Or if this would happen. Or if that would happen. Or if, we'd get, or if this person would teach Bible class. Or if we'd just do this my way. But all that is is a leaky roof. It's us just circling, ignoring the hurts we have, putting band-aids on the symptoms, putting on a false face of, look, I'm at church and I'm here to worship, going through the motions, playing church. And, And I'm not against every suggestion and every idea on how to program or help a church. But the truth is, it's what we all need is the Lord. That's the truth. The goal of David was to get him back with the Lord. Nathan's goal, why he was there, was not to say, gotcha, it was to say, 
go back into the presence of God. Some of us, I think, are caught thinking about just what new things we can do, and some of us are caught as a church just thinking about what old things we should do. Some of us think they're the problem, and some think other people are the problem. But First and Second Samuel isn't a story about a lone king who needs to get back to God. It's a story that's calling all of us to get back to God. And David says it so well. It's what Connor read for us just a moment ago. Create in me a pure heart, O God. David is a template for what we all need. He gets into the presence of the Lord and he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of little pet peeve here when we sing it wrong. It's your salvation. It's not my salvation. I hate when we sing it, my salvation, because I didn't do it, right? It's God's salvation. Restore to me your salvation. I had a college kid call me two weeks ago, and I said, what's going on with you, man? And he said, I'll tell you what's awesome is God has restored to me the joy of my baptism when I was in high school, and I'm just blown away. He was restored to the joy of God's salvation and grant me a willing spirit and sustain me. See, what this is about is not about one leak in the ceiling. If the church in our world is going to be the church, if we're going to be the hope for the world, if we're going to be the kingdom of God on earth, this isn't about one leak. This is about the whole roof. It's about us getting back to the heart of God. It's about us laying down our pride, laying down our wants and our desires and becoming the servants we're supposed to be. We all need a Nathan. And we all need to be mature enough to be a Nathan. But to be a Nathan, you've got to start in the presence of the Lord. Because that's what God wants, right? Later in the psalm, and I'll close with this, David gets it. I don't know how he wrote Psalm 51. I don't know if you've just imagined him like Nathan comes to him, he's convicted, and then he just goes over to the corner and jots down Psalm 51. I don't think it happened that way. Conviction takes time. Process takes time, right? But I think Psalm 51, in the process of it, there's something that David gets. There's something that makes him return to being the king after God's own heart. And it's here in verse 15 and 17 where he says, Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. God wants you. It's what it means to be broken and contrite. David figures it out. This rhymes with all of Scripture. Micah asked God the same question. Micah 6, 8, what do you want? I want you to want justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, right? It's a pretty good definition of broken and contrite. Isaiah 58 Isaiah 40, Amos 7. It's all over the Old Testament. And of course, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. 
What do you want? What's God want? Not from David, not from your elders, not from your leaders. What's he want of you? He wants a broken and contrite heart. Man, I have these goals. I have these desires in my life like you all do. I have this, this, this narrative that I want things to work out. I do that in my personal life. I do that in my church life. And there's really not much of a difference between the two. But I often make the mistake of wanting those goals to be based on who I am and how much I can accomplish or things going my way. And if you're with me on that and you get frustrated in that, can I get a little encouragement here and hear an amen? <laughs> right? And when I do that, and I'm just telling you all from my heart today, when I do that, I get away from what God wants. I start offering God bulls of sacrifice, and I start offering God all these things that I know he doesn't really want. David says it here. You don't delight in sacrifice. And I miss out on what God wants. See, what God wants from every one of us is for us to be able to come to him and say, God, I don't have much. In fact, I don't have anything. I'm a mess. And because I'm a mess, I know I need you. And I want you. And I want to walk with my church family behind you. Here I am, Lord. That's a broken and contrite heart. May we all be Nathans when we need to be. But man, before you try to be a Nathan, make sure you're there with David. Wanting the Lord, seeking the Lord, hunger for the Lord. May God bring us to that place today. If you need anything this morning, we're here for you. Elders will be out to pray for you. I think we all could respond to this in some way. I would encourage you to respond to this in some way by talking to somebody, sharing in your life group, sharing with your church family today. Because we all need, we all need the Lord. Let's stand together and let's sing.